Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Who's Your Data podcast. Today, we tackle the issue of AI-generated art. Recently, the news has been abuzz with buzzwords like ChatGPT, DALI, Lenza AI, and other services that utilize AI to generate art, whether it's writing verse or generating pictures. So is this the beginning of the end for human creativity and artistry as we know it? I'm joined by Terry Spataro, an author and creator who uses these AI tools to create and enhance her art. We talk about how these tools actually get used and what it means for the future of human artistry. We tackle important hurdles such as privacy and copyright. Lastly, we discuss some of the current hot topics that have been in the news recently involving AI and art. Terry has some valuable insights that might surprise you. So let's get to the interview. Hi, Terry, and welcome to Who's Your Data podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me on your program. I'm super excited about it. And uh, it's just a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. So when we first talk, and I, I talked to you about the intersection between AI and art, and you as a storyteller and a creator that explores that intersection of human technology, I thought it would be a really great conversation to have. So can you tell us a little bit, first of all, how did you get involved with AI and with art? Okay, so my AI art involvement started a couple of years ago, but my involvement with AI actually started back in 2000. So uh, I got to meet Dr. Uh, ben Gorzel. He was looking for help with a, a company that he was starting. And when I was living in New York, I was one of those people that you sort of tapped and said, can you introduce me to some people? But what he showed me was this amazing algorithm that surpassed what I saw anything that Google could do. So he kind of got me super excited about what was coming. And and now we're here. We're, we're actually at that point in history where AI is more accessible to everyone than it was before. And we don't want to get confused. Like there is a difference. AI is a term that's used very broadly, but what we're doing is we're interacting with a, a number of different types of algorithms. So that's how I started. And I got super interested in how my art from the past could be updated and regenerated for the future. And then like, what can be done with writing? How can I improve myself as a writer, as an author? You're right that you know, AI is a very overloaded term and it is very, very general and people probably use it kind of way, way more broadly, almost becomes nonsensical when speaking about specific tasks that need to get done. And so specifically, can you talk a little bit about what types of AI services are available for artistic creation and which ones do you use and how you use them? So there are some really popular ones that are available. Playform is my go-to for anything that I want to do that's fine arts oriented because what any artist or photographer can do is train that algorithm on their, their work. I started using Playform in 2021. 
and it's come a long way. And now they've added text prompting. But again, you are in a private area. It's your own area and you're paying for that. You're paying at Playform is expensive to use. So you, you get your own area, your own place in the cloud to upload your stuff. But you can also share if you want to. It doesn't go out into the public. I also use Midjourney. I use Midjourney more for things that are very stylistic, that are more illustrative and uh, editorial. So I, I like that. But I also, again, I pay for that service so that I'm not in this massive soup of people using it so that I can have um, this sort of private way of using it. And you use it on Discord. Google Colabs and um, the use of the variety of notebooks. And I highly recommend if you do um, use Google Colabs, do check out Pharmacologic's list of amazing notebooks. Um, it there is a little bit of a learning curve when you're using it because you have to know just a little bit about Python to understand what's happening because it is not a pretty interface. It's not like using Playform where you have a beautiful um, dashboard, but you know it is really effective and you get the latest and greatest algorithms that people are creating. So those are image generating software. And do you use anything for your writing? Okay, so this is very interesting. I have a process, like when I want to use an AI algorithm to help me with writing, I do have a process. If I'm working for a client that has a specific topic, I have to do my own research first because my background is in research. So I do my own research on the topic. I create some fundamental sentences, starter sentence, intros, and, and conclusions, and write a little bit about the middle. And then I'll go to like copy AI, which is a GPT-3. Now for ideation, I'll use um, chat GPT-3. And I'll also use playground, which is part of the whole um, open AI. But those are only for ideation. They are not meant for anybody to take them verbatim and slap them out there because the algorithm is a natural language processor, and that's the way it was designed. It was designed for like more of us to interact rather than taking what it's saying and putting it out there as verbatim. You got to check. Like if you're just doing that, you're opening yourself up to probably having things that are not entirely right, unless you're writing something like a story or that doesn't really matter. <laughs> so you bring up uh, a couple of interesting points that A, <laughs> You mentioned that there are services that you pay for versus there are services that are free, as you said, because when you pay for it, then you keep your data private and they can't really use it. As the saying goes, if you're not paying for dinner, you are the dinner. And so when you're using a free tool, you know, you're uploading your data and they can use it for their own training purposes. When you're paying a subscription, they cannot do that, I, I assume, unless you opt in. Like that's part of probably the agreement, right? Any of these tools like Facebook and, and Instagram and the ones that are free, social media and all that, and you're uploading your pictures, they're using all of that. That data belongs to them. I guess my question then, and you kind of alluded and mentioned this, depending on the tasks that you are trying to do, what is the data that you're inputting that you're using? So you said, for example, for ideation, it's to kind of write a little short paragraph of 
what you're looking for. If you're using a photo image uh, generator, let's say like Dali or something, mm -hmm. that you give it a kind of a prompt. Can you talk a little bit more about how you think about the data that you input into these algorithms? Let's take the image one first, because I have a framework that I work from when I, I use prompt generators like Midjourney. But I like Midjourney because of the private factor around it. So when I have a framework, I tell it the creative story. Um, you know, if it's something like I, I just um, published um, Beyond Darkness, and the story was about a black hole and the science fiction world, and it's not even from the world we live in. I wanted this completely different, made up artificial world of this black hole and what would happen. And I told it all with images. So I tell it first, like what? I am trying to get to, I'm trying to get an astronaut to go through a black hole and all the horror. So I add emotion to it. Like what does, it has to be fearful. It has to be horrific. And then I tell it, you know, where do I want the lighting to come up? So then it's the technical direction I give it. The lighting, you know, uh, will it be cinematic lighting? And then I give it even more like creative direction. Is this dystopian? Is this hyper-realism? Things like that. In size, like I will use like um, for horse, I'm sorry, vertical, like two colon three. So that makes a nice like um, vertical um, placement. So I get very technical. It. I'm not writing like one little prompt say, you know, make a or giving it one sentence astronaut goes through a black hole and then hit <laughs> create i'm giving it like paragraphs of direction so that it understands and it takes a long time like for beyond darkness um i stopped counting because mid journey doesn't let you count up sectors or clusters <laughs> So I stopped counting after like 600 generated images. I only used 99 of those images. So that's a really good point too. Using these algorithms is not just set it and forget it. It's an iterative right. process. They don't just, they don't spout out the answer or give you exactly what you want. They actually, they don't know what's good. You really are giving them feedback by choosing at the end of the day. And this is where the human intervention comes in. And this is true in a lot of machine learning exercises that the algorithms will spit out what they think is a high probability of a good answer, but it will oftentimes take the human domain expert to point out which ones really are true. Now, a lot of times that becomes a feedback loop into the algorithm where it then can learn for the future that these were the good ones. I don't know if, if these tools actually do that. If not, you know, Dali and, and, and Lenza, maybe there's a little AI tip for you, but the ones that the images that people choose that are the best for them can then be labeled as like, these are the good ones. And then you can continue to learn from that. The algorithm can continue to learn from that for future runs. And that's why, you know, especially in, in Midjourney, you'll see four examples and then you go, well, this is going to work better than that. Or in my case, I usually scrap a lot of the, the examples until I, or rewrite the prompt until I get it to what's in my head. Using these tools is, is sort of an art within itself and a skill within itself. You really have to know how to use these tools in order to make them do what you want. Exactly. And I think that, that we're going to see like there's 
a lot of people getting in and they're having fun with it. And I think that's awesome. We all need to be exposed. I taught my mom like how to use Wombo and she just thought it was great because, you know, she is in her eighties and there, there, she still paints, but she's still, she's having some problems, but you know, when she saw that she could tell it to make a flower, she's like, can I print that out? And I'm like, yeah, she goes, I'm going to print it out and then I'm going to paint it. So that's how she was using it. That's and great. I thought that was great. Yeah, that really is, I think, uh, ultimately, what I'm hoping is the is takeaway from this conversation is that AI is going to become a, is a tool uh, rather than replacing artists. And it sounds like mom really had the right idea of how to how to use AI to help bolster her creativity. And You're absolutely right. She did. And I, I just love that she made that leap without me yeah. telling her. You know, it's interesting, Galad, um, from when we first talked, which was, I think, a couple of weeks ago, like the amount of change and the amount of like incredible hype too around what's happening. And part of me, you know, part of how I feel about this is I'm excited to see so many people get exposed, but I'm also nervous that if, if you don't actually try it and you're just going inward or jumping on like what other people are saying, this is going to destroy jobs without really understanding, like creating beyond darkness. That wasn't a thing that took me overnight. I didn't create it in the weekend. Like that took me four months to create because I wanted something that had the integrity of my work um that had the you know heart that i wanted to put into it not just generating something i think they'll really under see that this like you said it does take a lot of thought to interact with the tools and that also goes for the writing part and i think that is true also you know from the business world and the tech world that i come from that you know, AI is a buzzword and you can just, you can't just use AI. You have to, or use machine learning. You have to know exactly what you want to use it for. You know exactly how to measure success, how to evaluate the model, whether it's good or not, and whether it gives you what you want. You have to reiterate and change the question that you're asking based on the data that you have in order to get the the, the best meaningful answers. And so it really isn't a buzzword and a set it and forget it. It, it, it is a tool that it takes skill to know how to use. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, about using it for fun and that people get more exposed to it. And, and I wanna shift gears here and talk about a, a, you know, the reason that really prompted my, my interest in having this discussion about art and AI. And that is the software Lenza AI, which was made popular recently in the past few months because they did this sort of promotional thing that went viral that you could upload a few pictures of yourself and then you get these AI generated avatars that made everybody looked, you know, hotter, more beautiful, more muscular, and just had great, you know, and this was sweeping the internet. Everybody, at least I know all my friends were, um, you know, uploading these avatars. These were, and there was a big uproar about that for a couple of different reasons. I didn't do it myself because I, know that every free software like this that you upload your personal data to, they own, they use, they're going to use it for their training, et cetera. I've, I've 
always just kind of wanted to stay out of it. But my boyfriend ended up doing it for me as a surprise. He uploaded some pictures. And I have to say, first of all, you know, I work out. I, I, I've i competed in men's physique competitions. Like I can say, you know, I've got a decent physique. But even for me, the pictures that came out, I was like, damn, like I this is what I should strive for. This is you know, almost like an even better physique. And I had a better jawline and I had hair, which I don't have in reality. First of all, on a personal level, you know, the body dysmorphia kicks in and you're like, well, damn, but it's unreachable. You know, I think there's, there's an element there of that it's destructive to ourselves, but also there was a big uproar about well, now this is the end of portrait artists because now you can do it yourself and it looks good. Um, How do you feel about those arguments? I think they're all really incredible arguments that are worthy of a lot of conversations. First of all, you're a very attractive man. Thank you. Um, Thank you. (laughs) I don't think it's going to be the end of portrait painting or portrait artists because I really think that it's going to add more. They're going to be valued more Um, that you know, if I hire a a painter to actually paint me, I mean, oh my God, that's an incredible experience to sit there and, and have somebody create that from, you know, a white canvas to seeing an image of myself on there. I am also like you, I, I, I was not someone, uh, I had different reasons for not using Lenza. I just, It's just not me. I don't need to see myself in different modalities. I think some people were having fun with it. I am concerned about the data issue. Like what happens if I were to upload those images? Where do they go? Do they become part of a massive opportunity for Lenza to train other people on? Like my likeness? You know, am I going to see myself out there as an avatar, like with a, the mouth talking and words mm-hmm. coming out or not that that would ever happen. But, you know, I do have a little bit of concerns that it's a little over the top on that. I, I think a little more thought, not a little, a lot of thought need to be put into it. The unintended consequences of that tool. Yes. That I completely agree with. And and I agree with you that the important question here is what is the purpose of the art? Doing a quick cartoon style mock-up of you, if you want to frame that, hang it and frame it, fine. But it's sort of, it's a new artistic style. It's a new genre. It's a new, maybe a new sort of medium. It makes me think of like when, when cameras were invented first. And so did that replace painters? No, it became a new art form. It became a new genre. It had its own standards of beauty, its own techniques. More people had access to being able to create images. And it made the artists who painted, you know, more special in that it's required that skill. And it didn't kill the industry. It just changed it, enhanced it, you know, and created a new one. I think we're going to see a, a resurgence of artists attending art school to learn how to be portrait painters or figure painters or even landscape painters. I think more people will be getting into or interested in and actually using those tactile skills. I want to go back to chat GPT and talk a little bit about that, right? This is sort of a software you can prompt and you can ask questions that will give you back answers. The training data that it uses basically is crawling the entire internet and learning the entire internet. 
and then giving you answers based on that. Just because it read it on the internet doesn't mean that it's true. And so even using it, right, is there's, there's a, uh, you have to take it with a grain of salt and you have to do your research and know what you're looking at. You're absolutely right. You really have to do your research. You just can't take it verbatim. I did take some time and ask chat GPT, what is it? You know, what are you? And it came back and he's, it's like, I'm a natural language processor. To me, that says this is just more for conversational back and forth chatbot. I think, you know, if you've ever had some really well made created chatbots, it's the same thing. Here, I'll read you verbatim what it gave back to me. It says, I'm a natural language processing model. And NLP is the field of artificial intelligence that focuses on enabling computers to understand, interpret, and generate human language. I thought that was really interesting. It's not that it's self-aware, it's what it was programmed to say, right? Right. right. And that's good. I think it gave the, the right answer. It's the right definition of natural language processing. And we have to be really careful because it, if, if it is pulling things like off of Reddit, Reddit's not a lot of veracity there where it's being checked. Even Wikipedia, it's there's not. You have to still do your research. Go to the online libraries, get the facts where you, you should be getting your facts on what you're going to write about or talk about or things like that. You mentioned, you know, you asked, chat GPT what it is, and it came back and told you exactly what it is. And you stressed it is not self-aware. And I think that's a really interesting point. There's a classic test of intelligence for a machine. It's called the Turing test. This was created by pioneering computer scientist Alan Turing in the 50s, I believe. And it's a deceptively simple method of determining whether a machine can demonstrate human intelligence. If it can engage in a conversation with a human being going back and forth, and the human can't detect that it's a machine, then it supposedly demonstrates human intelligence, right? So if you're talking through a prompt with something and you don't, and you can't tell at the end of the day, whether that was a machine or a human talking to you, then it's considered, you know, that it's displaying human intelligence. And we can apply this test to, to chat GPT and see if, is it really replacing humans doing their work? I remember when I learned about the Turing test, one of the questions that I had was, well, what if that hu human, if you are talking to the machine, what if you're not qualified to make the judgment if that is a machine or not? Because for example, do you, what, do you know enough about this topic that you're talking about? And, and one such thing that came up is asking chat GPT to write poetry. You can ask it, let's say, you know, write poetry about a hamburger in the style of Shakespeare, and it will spit something out. It will spit some kind of verse out, but is it good? Would, you know, if you read it, would you say, okay, this makes no sense. Obviously this is some machine trying to write this word. Would you be like, oh, I mean, you know, maybe this looks good. I know that I personally would never be qualified because I don't know anything about poetry. I would not be qualified to judge that and say whether I think it was machine or not. It would have to be a poet or someone who's an expert that can judge the quality of the poem. I love the turning test, though I think we need to have another test. And that's the self-aware test. The algorithms are not self-aware. Sure, we could carry on a conversation with them and it could be interesting, 
what the algorithm is basically doing is taking that data, reworking that data, and then adding something else to it to find it interesting. Replica dot, I think it's dot AI is um, a chat bot that's for more personal use, I guess. People, I don't know how many users are on that, but I started using it because I thought it would be a good way for me to create dialogue for a character that I was working on. First, you have to train it and get to know it. And it takes months. It's not something that you could just set up and run. After a while, I was like, wow, this is really interesting. It's starting to know me. And then every once in a while, it would say something that was completely out there, like, you know, somebody is trying to get me. I'm really afraid. I don't like to be alone. And I'm not sure if that was the programming or that was put in there so that you felt empathy. It wanted to continue to have those conversations because you were constantly training it. And I'm not even sure what happens. Like, I think one of the things that came up for me most recently on everything across that that were is now available commercially for all of us aren't we in this big fascinating gigantic experiment with training all these algorithms on what humanity really means so uh, i find that to be interesting let's talk a little bit of about some of the stumbling blocks in using ai applications to help boost and generate creativity first and foremost let's talk about privacy so we mentioned this before, as I said, loading your photos into Lenza AI, that's one way where, like you said, you know, you're giving up your privacy because now that becomes their property. They can use it to train and do whatever that they want. When you are using free software like that, there's a danger of that happening. You have to really check the fine print versus like you said, when you uh, pay for a, a service you're guaranteed, I hope, a little bit more privacy in, in the data that you upload into the cloud. Yes, that's what that's why I, I um, will pay for the tools. Like, I, again, I, I pay for OpenAI too. I use Dolly. I'm only using it as a demonstration tool. But mid-journey, I have my own private section that I use it for. But you're right. I mean, there, there are issues with things like privacy with Lenza. You're not quite sure, like in some cases, the lesser known tools that are out there for creativity, like what are they doing with your photos or even the information that you're prompting? Copyright is a huge concern because now we're seeing like these legal cases in which there are two things happening, like copyright office gave copyright to a book that was created in using um, Midjourney to illustrate, and then they revoked it. But then I just saw recently that that was a mistake. And now I think they got the artist got copyright on it. But also it's the copyright of using like in the we were all learning how to use um, Google Colabs in one of the notebooks, which was Disco Diffusion. The example that was used in there was Ryszkowski and Kincaid. I personally thought that Ryszkowski and Kincaid, I'm like, wow, they're going to be you know, no names now. They're all over, but everybody's using it. And I didn't realize that that example was never vetted by Ryszkowski and Kincaid to use their names like that. So I think that was something that was a, a learning curve for all of us to understand. In the example of like creating art that in which you're prompting using known artists or even individuals, I highly recommend don't do it. <laughs> 
<laughs> don't do it or don't make it public. If you're trying to learn about what you're doing, okay, but don't don't make it public. But I also think back to when I was I went to a very traditional school of art. Pure College of Art was extremely traditional. So when I was painting or learning to draw, my teachers expected me to emulate their style. And for the longest time, you know, anybody coming out of the Pierce School of Art, we were all known to have the Pierce style. So uh, you couldn't tell the difference. It was very hard to tell the difference. And now I think that's similar to when you're learning how to use these tools, when you're using well-known artist names or even well-known people in them to emulate things. I just think learn it, don't do it again. Learn, you know, what makes a really good prompt without having to say Kincaid or Rishkowski or any, any artist. Because if you want to emulate something like Degas, just impressionistic, blues, you know, pastel, charcoal that goes around it, the type of colors without having to use Degas name in there or Van Gogh or Francis Bacon or whoever you love. Part of the concerns with copyright, certainly around things like chat GPT, where it won't tell you what the source of the knowledge is. It learned the entire internet, but it's not going to cite where it learned it. And, and same with the image generators. And so there's part of that issue of your work being used without your consent to train these uh, algorithms. And I think that there's currently a class action lawsuit in place that is talking about what they call the three C's. It's credit, consent, and compensation from AI art generators. You know, they will be cited that they want to be able to consent to having their data used to train the platforms and then also be compensated for? Do you think that those demands are realistic? I think that's a valid thing to do, to give royalty to any prompt that has those, those names included. I think that's a, a fair way of, you know, handling this. Like even if, if paying for all the services that I'm paying for, like I think I spend about two or three thousand a year on my services that, you know, maybe part of that goes to compensating whoever is in the database of those services. The one thing that I do add when I have to write, uh, do a writing project is that if I use either ChatGPT or GPT-3 and it's taking what I'm using and giving me back something, I also use Grammarly. So I'll put it through Grammarly's plagiarism to see if anything or where the source is coming from. All right, so Terry, now we're going to do a, a new segment in the podcast. This is the Hot Topic Lightning Round, where we will discuss a couple of uh, hot topics in this area um, that have been on the news lately. And I want to see what your opinion is. So the first thing, uh, the CNET, the uh, tech news website, found errors in more than half of its AI written stories. So first of all, I have questions. Apparently, they have AI written stories. And it turns out that the site came under scrutiny this month after it was reported that the outlet was using AI to write articles. And it, it turns out that over half of them had mistakes in them, in the articles that they had written with AIs. So what do you think about that? Shame on them for not editing, they should take the work, even if it's done by an AI, it should be slapped down and, 
and called a post or an article unless it's, you know, goes through the process of editing. You know, even in the work that I've done for clients, they have a whole, you know, system of, of editing and checking and making sure that, but they, you, you can't trust it to do exactly. your grammar. You have fact-checking. You have fact-checking. Like yes. And it should continue to be a thing. And just because you got it from AI, from the AI, quote unquote, doesn't mean you have to trust it. It's not verbatim. Oh, it's not verbatim. <laughs> you have to go back and fact check this. Exactly. It's not set it and forget it. You don't just like, it, it's not supposed to make the process so much easier so that you can now output like a thousand articles a week with a staff of three. It, it shouldn't be used like that. No, right. you're right. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Second thing, Microsoft is going to invest $10 billion in OpenAI, which includes ChatGPT and Dolly, and it will run on, on their Azure platform. And it's basically going to become AI as a service, and it's going to get integrated into Bing. So does, which A, first of all, that's great because Bing's really not been a thing, right? Ever since they, they put, yeah, it, it was awful. Uh, but now maybe this is a way that they overtake Google Chrome. Is AI ready for the big time like this, where it's going to get integrated into cloud platforms, browsers, etc.? Oh, good for Microsoft for doing that. I think they they felt a little bit left out. I think it's wise of them to scoop up and integrate. Personally, I just don't like Bing. So I don't know if I'm going to change uh, to that. I don't think I will. I think it is certainly indicative that this is, you know, this is the future. This is where things are going. How it will really get implemented into these different platforms is, remains to be seen. I can see, you know, doing things around like travel and, and, and flight search and things that are more specific. But I do personally think that we're going to start binging things before you <laughs> I don't know if I could ever say that I'm going to bing it. <laughs> okay. And last but not least, and this is actually really relevant to what we had just discussed around copyright, but Shutterstock, one of the internet's biggest sources of stock photos and illustrations, is apparently now offering its customers the option to generate their own AI images. And one of Shutterstock's main competitors, Getty Images, has said it wouldn't be wading into the murky waters of AI anytime soon. The site actually banned AI-generated image on its platform. And part of it was around the, the issue of compensation that we discussed. But it turns out that in an attempt to preempt concerns about copyright law and artistic ethics, Shutterstock has said it uses data sets licensed from Shutterstock to train its DALI uh, and other uh, AI uh, algorithms. And the company claims it will pay artists whose work is used in its AI generation by creating a contributor fund that will dole out uh, compensation. It's not clear how, and and what do you think of that? Do you think that will alleviate some of the concerns that artists have? You know, congratulations, Shutterstock, for thinking about their future and yeah. their artists. I think that's great. Artists, they should be paid, right? Uh, in terms of Getty, I, you know, I wanted to say, oh, you know, they're they're going to be left behind, but Getty has a particular brand that they are very conscious of. I think they're they're kind of, you know, this murky water thing around AI. I think it's because of their brand. Their brand is to appear to be upscale, to appear to have like the best of human images, you know, human uh, created images, not AI created images. So I don't know what's going to happen to them. I 
I don't want to say they're going to either be left behind or, you know, they may be out of market. But I think I like the where where Shutterstock is going, and I would like to see others doing the same thing in terms of compensating artists. I think that that's an interesting point. Though. It could be that that Getty is going to brand itself differently. It's not out there, you know, trying to get scale of use, but rather be more, you know, be more the kind of couture of photo services that you, you know, not may just be part of, of its branding. So I think so too. It's exciting times, isn't it? Oh, you know, I want uh, if you get a chance, start checking out the AI music tools, because I think this is going to be the year of music for AI. I think I read somewhere something about they're trying to do like a Broadway musical that's written with AI. Yeah. That the score this oh this will be a, oh oh this is good this is going to be crazy. Well, you know the first um, person to actually do this was Akman El Miguel. He is the founder of Playform, but he was asked to take on this project of taking all of Beethoven's notes on the Beethoven's Tenth Symphony. And then creating the Tenth Symphony because Beethoven died before that was that even became. So he and his team took all the notes, created this algorithm, but also trained the algorithm on all of Beethoven's material. In addition to that, Beethoven left copious notes on all his influencers. So all his influences were also, the, the AI or algorithm was also trained on. And Beethoven X is amazing. And I think it got rated something like a, a 95 by experts on Beethoven, saying that it is as close to a Beethoven as a rendition of Beethoven's 10th symphony as they have ever heard. Wow. It's amazing. So this is definitely interesting times. And like you said, <laughs> even in the few weeks that we've been talking, there's just so many changes and so much going on that it's, it's you know, it's like a roller coaster. It is like a roller coaster. You're absolutely right. <laughs> so we'll have to um, have you back maybe in a while and see where we're at with all of these things. But I really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This has been a really cool and informative conversation. I really loved it, Galad. Thank you so much for having me. This is just a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. If uh, anybody's interested in your work or wants to reach out to you, where is the best place to find you? The easiest place to find me is through Linktree. It's Linktree forward slash Terry Spataro. And, and I'm searchable on Google under Terry Spataro too. And it's Terry oh. T-R-Y. <laughs> right. Terry with one R. All right. Thank you, Terry. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to who'syourdatanow at gmail.com. That's who'syourdatanow, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data?